So our passage today, it contains the best news in Scripture, expressed through some of the most beautiful images that we have in the whole of Scripture. And verse 9 says, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Unrighteous or unjustified, it's the same word uh, in Greek, it's a legal word defining our status before God. And taking the image of a, of a great trial, Paul says, the evidence is in, and the evidence against us is pretty bad. For example, neither the sexually immoral, a word that we examined last week, a word so broad that surely it encompasses just about every single one of us in the room, nor idolaters, worshippers of the other gods, not just the ones with names, but anything can become an idol for us. Even good things can become idols. Even churches can become idols. Nor adulterers. Clever, really, combining the first two charges in many ways. Adultery, obviously, sleeping around, infidelity of some kind. But in Scripture, adultery is often a word that's used metaphorically for the way we practice infidelity against God. So now the two are combined with this one idea. Nor men who practice homosexuality, note carefully, not those who are, but those who do. Verse 10, nor thieves, embezzlers and pilferers, probably a white-collar kind of a crime. Verse 10, thieves, do a tax return. They just don't quite do it right. Nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, people on the take and on the make, violent people, angry people, grumbling people, people with a beef, people who want to fight, people who want to rob you blind. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. And then comes the zinger in verse 11. Brace. And such were some of you. What an understatement. Feels to me, as I read this list, like a kind of spiritual bingo card for me. And I'm one or two counters away from completing a row, I think. I'm a new creation church. I don't intend to complete a row. You might be relieved. But I'm off to a pretty rotten start. It's my list. I'm on it more than once. And that is a problem. Because unrighteous people like me do not go to the kingdom of God. So why do I call these beautiful images? And why do I describe this as some of the best news that there is in Scripture? Verse 11. But you. Simon Ponsonby, one of our favorite preachers, says, I praise God for but you. But you, says Paul, were washed. Such a specific and powerful word, washed. It's a conjunction of two words in Greek. Apolao means out of or from cleansed. It's a word for preparing a body for burial. It's a word very specifically for removing dried blood and gore and, and gangrene and pus from an open wound. It's a graphic word, washed. Some of the things on this list have left us wounded with open wounds, tender spots. Uh, things we've done, things done to us, have left us kind of feeling sore, 
that maybe the church and the way the church has spoken about these things has actually just made it worse. That is possible. And yet, our wounds have been washed. Past tense, a done deal, aorist tense, in fact. It's been achieved. Saw some footage this week, a documentary from the streets of Philadelphia, and it's been declared as ground zero for the fentanyl crisis in the United States. And yet in recent weeks, a new drug has entered the scene, uh, particularly in that city. And uh, it's even worse than fentanyl. It seems the dealers now are, are cutting that terrible drug with another one, an animal tranquilizer of some kind, to try and uh, make people even more addicted to what it is they sell. And this new combination drug is causing these horrific wounds to open up on people's bodies as their bodies break down. These wounds appear overnight. You do not know when they're going to manifest. First, the limb swells, the ankle, the leg. Uh, then the skin starts to blister. Then painfully, the body breaks down. The skin itself dissolves. This is a painfully fatal way to live. I watched a doctor approach these people in the streets with such tender care. He knelt down in amongst all the filth, all the detritus of the drug trade, and the litter. And taking their swollen limbs just gently in his hands, their feet, their swollen, filthy feet, in his hands, gently he just washed the wounds, just cleaned them, spoke to them with such dignity, looked them in the eye, such a rapport. These weren't patients, these were people, as he related to them, as he held them. Gently he washed their wounds and he says, I'll be back in two days, take care. It's such an extraordinary word, washed, such a powerful Image. It's probably one of the most graphic images that we have in Scripture. I'd never seen this word before because it's so rare in Scripture. In fact, it occurs only in one other place, Acts 22:16, in the context of baptism and the washing away of sins in the name of Jesus Christ, just like it says here in verse 11. His name is the only name that we have that can wash us clean in that way. Like the doctor, Jesus comes to us and he kneels in the filth and he looks us in the eye and tenderly he washes our wounds. He dresses them and he makes them clean. So many of us have been shamed by the things on this list. And we are embarrassed for our wounds to be seen. We want to hide them, especially in the church. Jesus comes to us far more like a doctor than a judge. And the reason why he exposes these things is so that he can heal them. That's his aim. Verse 11, but you were washed. A definitive thing has occurred that has taken away our sins. Paul continues, you were sanctified, made holy, set apart, like a thing for ministry, consecrated, that's what the word means, like the bread, like the wine, like Jesus himself. For all of your sin and all of your wounds, you've become a holy thing. 
useful. And you were justified, made righteous, given a new legal standing, made legally right like Christ himself. In Greek, uh, this is the opposite of the unrighteous word that we have in verse 9. You were unrighteous, now you are righteous. Unjustified, now you are justified. Guilty, now innocent. The trial concludes. The evidence has been heard. It's overwhelming. The verdict is in. The sentence of death has been proclaimed, but you are loved by the judge. That's what this passage says. Uh, Where did all of the unrighteousness go? The answer is upon him. Where did all the righteousness come from? The answer is from him. It's one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture, one of the clearest, most grace-filled descriptions of the wonderful work of the cross that we have in all of Scripture. It depicts how the full horrors of our sin manifest, and the shame that we feel, and how that leads us into death. And yet it depicts the full beauty of our restoration in the loving hands of Jesus Christ who comes to us and with dignity makes us whole and then provides for us an inheritance and calls us royal, royalty, after all we've done, heirs of the kingdom of God. Uh, It is so fun. And so easy to preach this stuff. I can't believe I got such an easy passage. Uh, This is like the exegetical equivalent of T-ball with a cricket bat. Like, knock it down. Like, it took me two minutes to write everything I've told you so far. I can't believe I get such an easy passage. And yet most of us braced when we heard a certain word or we saw what was coming up. Why? Because, verse 9, we've been deceived. Uh, We've allowed someone else to frame the way we think. And uh, because some of the words on this list are so jarringly, offensively at odds with everything else we hear in this world, uh, we tend to avoid a passage like this. And when we avoid it, we miss out on all of those beautiful images that God has written for us. Now, I'm not going to get into the meaning of these words today or or argue with you whether they should even be here in the first place or whether it's time to kind of improve Scripture or whatever. I want to ask a much deeper question than that. That that is a very uh, sort of secondary question. There's a much deeper question. And that is, why might we wish this passage said something else? Why might we wish to edit it just a little bit? Uh, What I'm doing right now is I'm inviting you to have an open mind about this passage. And uh, I want to ask, what prejudices we might have brought with us to this passage? What preconceptions or, or ways of thinking might we have brought with us to church that make it difficult for us to hear what God has to say? Uh, like the Corinthian church, I just fear that our capacity for clear Christian thought has been dulled just a little bit. Uh, by steeping our minds in the culture of the day. So let's ask, um, why might the original hearers in Corinth have got a bit shirty about this and reacted so badly to it? Uh, Note, by the way, probably they would have reacted badly to different words than the ones we react to, but that's just how culture evolves. 
Uh, why don't they like it? It's going to be a lot easier to talk about them than us, so let's do it that way. Why don't they like it? Three possible reasons. Number one, if you glance back to chapter 5, verse 2, it's helpful to have Scripture open because uh, Paul has this little habit of um, sort of making an argument, running away from it, changing the subject, and then coming back to it again. Uh, it's clever, and we'll get to why he does that in a few weeks' time, but it can be easier sometimes to jump around and see uh, where he's going. So uh, chapter 5, verse 2, Paul says, You are arrogant. That word means proud. And so the first reason why they might believe that certain words should not be on this list is because of pride just generally, just general pride. Uh, pride, perhaps, that they're always right. Uh, a proud culture that assumed uh, there really could never be anything wrong with them because they were inherently the right sort. Uh, everyone should be free to write their own list because we're bright enough to write our own lists. Well, certainly we see that kind of thinking today, don't we? My truth is this. Who are you to tell me what to think? This is a free country. I can think whatever I like because someone told me to think that. Second idea. Uh, perhaps some people were actually relieved to see the things on this list. They agreed with it. They saw this list. They thought, yeah, that's probably correct. But for some reason... They kept that thought to themselves. They were afraid to speak up. That is possibly true as well. Uh, the letter has shown how people were abused for believing unfashionable things. And it's going to go on to talk about how those with resources or a platform were able to browbeat those without and get their own way. So it's possible that people see this list and just pretend to be upset about it. And in fact, they're fine with it. Maybe you see some things like that today as well. There could be a third, much deeper reason why they're unhappy about this list. And if you jump down now to chapter 6, verse 12, you see a little phrase there in quotes. It says, all things are lawful for me. It's a, it's a catchphrase. That's all it is. All things are lawful for me. It's a sort of catchphrase of the church. I have here a Christchurch Fox Chapel muck. Uh, ooh, isn't it beautiful? And uh, as you know, on the other side, there's a little catchphrase, a community church preaching the gospel. We tried here on a mug to capture the full essence of what it is that we think we're all about in just a few words. If the Corinthian church had a church mug, uh, it would say, all things are lawful for me. That would be their slogan. It's what they're all about. Paul's not advocating it. He's just quoting them. That's why it's in quotes. I think all things are lawful for me is really an objection that there could be any kind of a list at all. Not what's on it, but that there even is one. I think they figured, uh, you know, because they're justified, made legally righteous, they're sanctified, cleaned up and made holy, they've inherited the kingdom of God because they're now royal children of God by grace, by the work of the cross of Christ, and the work of Christ who washed them clean, because of all of that good news, they could just now do whatever they liked. I'll take the drug. I won't get the wound. I've got an immunity to the effects of sin. The cross for the Corinthian church had become like a get-out-of-jail-free card. So now, all things must be lawful for me. There can be no list. 
Now, our society has its maxims and phrases as well, right? Little things we say, little truisms. Uh, okay, boomer. That's a, that's a way of dismissing the ideas of anyone over 60, just completely dismissing them. Uh, hakuna matata. That means no worries, right? We all know that one. Uh, born this way. What that means is it's absolutely impossible to change. You're just inexorably locked into a certain way of life and thinking uh, by genetics alone. You're a slave to them. My body, my choice. A way of saying that what I do with my body is absolutely none of your business at all. It's just down to me. And these phrases are brilliant. They're clever. They're funny. They're memorable. Uh, their power is in that they take incredibly nuanced, sensitive, complex, difficult subjects and they distill them into a sort of a pithy, memorable phrase that captures the essence uh, of an argument and it tends to win people around because people don't want their heads to hurt and the phrase is just really good. Church, you do realize that just because something rhymes does not mean that it is necessarily true. Just because the branding is great and it's repeated by everyone you know does not mean that it's true. In the book Faith for Exiles, David Kinnaman and the other bloke uh, found that for every, I don't know what his name is, found that for every hour, always get your name first, by the way, if you write a book. Uh, David Kinnaman and his friend found that for every hour of teaching we receive from church, for every one hour that you get in here, we get 20 hours of teaching from the world. That, by the way, is for the most engaged people in church life and the least addicted to the virtual life in this world. That's the best the stats can be. I just wonder, post-pandemic, post-work from home and post-virtual school, whether those stats might have shifted a little bit at all. I'm, I'm sure they're out of date. According to the New York Times and the Atlantic this week, our teenagers are now more addicted, more isolated, more depressed, and more given to self-harm than ever before uh, that we've ever seen. The world is not blind. It can see the wounds. But it concludes that the causes of the wounds must be passages like this one and preachers like me who preach it. Does that stack up? Just think logically for a moment. Does that make any sense? I've been here for nine years. I've only ever preached about grace. I don't think I've ever preached a passage like this one before or spoken about human sexuality at all until last week. Uh, think about everything else you've seen everywhere else for the last nine years. On TV and social media and movies and school curricula and workplace trainings and affirm trainings and flags in storefront windows and parades through the streets. Did the subject come up there at all? Did anyone mention it in the world? I don't know about you, it feels to me as though this is pretty much the only thing our culture has talked about for the last nine years. So before you think about what to think, I urge you first to think about how you think. Critically ask, who is influencing you? Why are they influencing you this way? 
What have you steeped in? What ideas have you taken on? What maxims have you heard and repeated and assumed must be true because everyone else is saying that? And then ask, has this made anything better at all? Paul says all things are not lawful for you. You are free from sin and its effects, but now you are bound to Jesus. Look at chapter 6, verse 20. He says, for you were bought with a price. It means a a high price, a valuable price. You were bought with valuables. It's uh, market language, probably specifically slave market language. And Paul says the price of your manumission from slavery to sin was paid for by Jesus Christ with his life. Because of this, you now belong to him. And verse 19, you are not your own. You are his. It's not your body, your choice. It's his. You belong to him because he paid for you. You're also one with him because he was raised for you. Verse 14. Through his birth, through his death, through his resurrection, through his identification with you in the flesh and yours with him by grace, you are now one with him part of Jesus. You are in Christ Jesus. That's why Paul says in verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? You're as much a part of Jesus as my hand is a part of my head. It's one body. In fact, I'm as much a part of you as we are with him together, one body. Though we are many, we are one body. Shall I then take the members of Christ, Paul says in verse 15, and make them members of a prostitute? So relieved that he changes the nature of the sin now. It's a little bit easier for us to deal with. Now you can see the point is a much broader one than any single issue. The point is this, because you're one with Christ, what you do with your body, you effectively do with his. You take him everywhere you go, from the bedroom to the boardroom to the bar, he's with you. He's there. He's in you. He's a part of you. And he does not consent to some of the things we do in those places. More than that, verse 19. More than that. Unbelievable, really, isn't it? More than the fact that you are Jesus. Verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple? Now, there's a biblical phrase that's become a maxim of the world. That's an interesting one, isn't it? My body is a temple. We say that all the time, don't we? I'll be honest with you. My body's a bit more like this sanctuary than a temple. (laughs) A little bit tired, perhaps, peeling in places. Damp. (laughs) Fluffy in parts, bald in others. Uh, Needs a renovation. Launching in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, But you'll hear this phrase, my body is a temple, and you probably think it's time to get ripped, right? I need to get a six-pack. I need to abstain from a few things and kind of get rock-hard abs. I'm tensing them now, and nothing seemingly is happening under this shirt. What a depressing (laughs) thought. It's not about that. My body is a temple. Complete the phrase. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. That's much better than abs. 
The temple was the old covenant dwelling place of God. And uh, once a year after careful preparation, as you know, the high priest would enter into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of God himself, a portal uh, between heaven and earth where God dwelled. And sometimes the high priest, after all of that preparation, would just cark it on the floor because of his unholiness, his unrighteousness. He wasn't ready. What we do with our bodies is like doing it in the holiest place, in the temple. And yet for all of our sin, we're way less holy than that high priest was. For all of our sin, here we are, alive. I'm going to have communion in a minute. No one's going to die. How? How is that going to happen? How are we more alive, in fact, than when we started? How are we more alive than when we were babies just born? The answer is because Jesus Christ died the death on our behalf. The true high priest who entered into the holy place for us. That's the power of the cross. Grace is always bigger than we thought it was. It covers everything. You think you found a sin that's bigger than the grace of God? You haven't. Now, uh, if you're not in Christ, I do not want you to feel judged by these words. Paul makes it very clear in chapter 5. These strange, specific, restrictive, countercultural ways of life are for those who belong to God. And you actually can't really do any of the good things on this list, even a little bit, uh, without God helping you. And even when you have the Holy Spirit within you, you will return to things on the list because we sin and we make mistakes, all of us. It's just part of the deal. You belong to God, you behave like God, you fall down, you get up again. That's grace. That's how it works. It is not our place to judge those outside of the church for failing to live like those inside the church. Why would they? How could they? Forget about it. And if the church has judged those outside the church, let's repent. It's not our place. Not yet, anyway. Likewise, uh, if you're in Christ, I don't want you to feel judged either. Because we're all on the list, all of us. No one is righteous, not even one. Even those of us who judge do the very same thing, Paul says in Romans 2. The only difference is that you were washed. That's the only thing. The power that washed you, verse 14, is the power that will raise you on the last day. The new start that we've received already is just a foretaste of this eternal inheritance in the kingdom of God that is yet to come. So should not the God who has done all that for you have the right to a voice in this world? Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, as we approach a passage that is so uh, difficult for us on account of the way it lands in our culture, I pray that you would give us grace and sensitivity to wrestle carefully with these issues and that you would give us humility to ask why it is we think like we think, what has formed us and shaped us and, and, and uh, influenced us. And Lord Jesus, uh, if any of us here is wounded, I pray that we would find that washing, healing gentleness that comes from you alone. 
Amen.